Stuart, thank you for joining us this morning. We know your time is valuable, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Good morning, and uh, thank you again for joining us. I'm Laura Prouse with Crest Insurance Services. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Crest, we have been providing real estate E&O insurance and risk management services to the real estate agents and brokers throughout the United States for over 20 years. We believe that every agent and every broker should have the right tools to succeed and to also have their clients have the best experience. So we hope you find today's webinar valuable and we'll be able to offer more of these throughout the year. So we will be putting those on the website and also sending out follow-up emails to let you know of future webinars. This morning, we're delighted to have Jennifer Sutman of Manning and Cass joining us. She'll be talking about the impact of the terrible wildfires on real estate and property management in California. Jennifer is the Acting General Counsel for Premier Real Estate Brokerage and she also leads the real estate agent and broker liability practice area at Manning and Cass. Jennifer's presentation today is avoiding claims from California wildfires. And before we get started, just a few housekeeping items. I will figure out a way to mute everybody since I know there's a lot of background noise. We're also going to have a Q&A at the end. So we invite you to submit your questions. There's a Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. If you wanna go ahead and type them as you think of them, please do so. We'll be addressing the questions at the end of the presentation. And if we don't have enough time to answer all of your questions, we will provide an email address that you can write to us outside of the webinar. So we'll go ahead and get started. Jennifer, welcome. And I'm gonna go ahead and mute so you can take over. Thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate you having me today. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, as, Laura, as Laura noted, my name is Jennifer Sutman. I am a partner with the law firm of Manning and Cass, Elrod Ramirez and Trester. That's a mouthful, I know. Uh, I am located in the San Francisco office. And Laura did indicate this. I am uh, the lead of the agent and broker liability practice area here in the San Francisco office. And I also serve as acting general counsel for a real estate brokerage firm here in San Francisco with offices and real estate licensees throughout the North Bay. They currently have about 400 real estate agents and brokers affiliated with them and keep me very busy managing uh, transactions day in and day out, in addition to any claims that come in and active litigation that is initiated. Uh, today, we're gonna to talk about new developments in California in 2018 and 2019, arising out of the recent California wildfires and the impact of these new developments on you as a real estate agent doing business here in California. As we all undoubtedly remember, uh, the 2018 wildfire season was the deadliest and most destructive season on record. There were more than 8,500 fires that burned in the area. More than 1.8 million acres were burned and destroyed. And the fires caused more than $3.5 billion in damages, including roughly 1.8 billion in fire suppression costs. As a result of the natural disasters here in California, on August 4th, 2018, a national disaster was declared in Northern California in connection with these wildfires. Unfortunately, after the declaration of emergency uh, in November 2018, some pretty strong winds aggravated the fire conditions here in the state and another round of large, even more destructive wildfires occurred across the state of California. 
those who were lucky enough to have their lives spared and who can afford to rebuild their homes face not only labor shortages, but very steep labor costs, insurance challenges, and building delays. And this all has an impact on you as real estate agents and brokers doing business in the state. Um, as a California real estate licensee, it's more than likely that you either have or will uh, represent a buyer that purchased a home destroyed by the California wildfires, represented a seller and the sale of such a property, or have a client who owns a home in or near the affected area uh, whose residence was spared by the fire uh, and is interested in or thinking about or has discussed with you renting his or her property to those displaced. First, we're gonna talk about what to expect if you represented a buyer or seller of a home that was destroyed by the recent wildfires. If a property listed or purchased is in a designated very high fire hazard severity zone or in a wildland area, which is in essence one that contains substantial forest fire risks. Both the seller and you as the listing agent and broker have to disclose this fact to the buyer. If either you or you as the, I'm sorry, if either you or your seller has actual knowledge that the property is in a designated fire zone or in the alternative, uh, if the city or county where the property is located has prepared a map of all properties in the fire zone, that map identifies the seller's property as being in the fire zone, and the city and or county has posted a notice that identifies the location of this map somewhere within the county, whether it be at the county recorder's office, the assessor's office, or with the county planning department. Most importantly, if when looking at the map, a reasonable person cannot tell with certainty whether the property that's being listed and sold is in the fire hazard zone, both the seller and you as the listing agent have to disclose that it is in a fire hazard zone, unless you have an expert report that's attached to the disclosure that states the opposite. In other words, that the property is not in such a zone. So, if, if you opt to prepare this form yourself and you're looking at a map and you can't determine whether the property is in this fire hazard zone, you have to disclose that it is. These disclosures are made on the natural hazard disclosure statement, otherwise called the NHDS, or on a local option real estate transfer disclosure statement if your client's jurisdiction mandated the use of the local option disclosure. Uh, a seller and listing agent can elect to use the services of a third-party consultant to complete the NHDS in lieu of completing the form themselves. And indeed, many brokers are now mandating the use of a third-party consultant to minimize uh, your liability as the listing agent um, and your potential liability and exposure in the event of an inaccurate reporting or determination. As agents are required to verify this disclosure in addition to the seller, uh, the best practice is to use a third-party consultant or expert to complete the disclosure and make the determination for you. However, it's worth noting that if you do use a third-party consultant to complete the NHDS, it does not relieve you and the seller from the obligation to deliver that form to the buyer. So you as the listing agent, even if you use a third-party consultant, still have the obligation to deliver the NHDS form to the buyer in connection with the transaction. 
next, we're going to talk about some potential claims that we're seeing arise from the California wildfires. You're seeing buyers initiate uh, litigation and, and pre-litigation claims against sellers, listing agents and brokers, and the buyer's own agent and broker for failing to disclose that the property was in a fire hazard zone or misrepresenting that it was not in such a zone. Buyers are alleging that the seller knew or should have known the property for sale was in such a zone and failed to disclose or misrepresented that material fact in connection with the transaction. Buyers are alleging that they were relying on their own agent and broker to advise them whether the property was in such a zone, to investigate this material fact on their behalf, and to counsel them on the risks of purchasing a property in a fire hazard zone, one of which being um, an inability to obtain homeowner's insurance, or uh, if, if they can obtain it, it's, it's very, very expensive. We're seeing sellers in these, uh, in these claims and, and civil actions alleging that their agent and broker should have advised them that their property was either in a fire hazard zone uh, or the need to disclose that material fact to buyers, or alternatively, uh, failing to recommend that they retain an expert consultant to prepare this report and make the determination for them, so that uh, so to minimize their potential liability and exposure in the event of an inaccurate reporting. Oftentimes, uh, I see that a lot of my real estate agents um, that I represent and brokers and their principals don't spend much time on these forms. The NHDS seems to be pretty much an afterthought. Um, and this form addresses not only fire hazard zones, but also earthquake fault zones and flood zones. Uh, these threats are very real in California, and I think this is a perfect time for us all to um, brush up on what our obligations are under these forms, our uh, different options for filling out these forms, and best practices in, in addressing these disclosures. Um, and that's especially true because agents have to sign these forms and attest to the, to the truthfulness of the information in addition to the seller, which is unique and different from most sellers' disclosures, um, which are contained on the TDS and the STDS, which very clearly state on the forum themselves, and you know, California law confirms this, that any, any representation made by a seller on a TDS or STDS is the representation of the seller alone. It's not the representation of a real estate licensee. Uh, this, this natural hazard disclosure form is the opposite, uh, whereas the agent has to attest to the information in addition to the seller. So the best practice here is to opt for a professional report in lieu of making the determination yourself. Uh, don't do work that you don't need to do and you know, don't put yourself in a situation that's gonna open you up to potential liability and exposure if you make the wrong determination. Next, we're gonna talk about uh, considerations that you need to keep in mind if you're approached by a client of yours who, own a who owns a home. Um, and that client indicates that they've been offered $20,000 a month or something significantly above what would be market rent for their property um, for a lease by tenants who have been displaced by the recent wildfires. I'm seeing this a lot with my clients, um, homes that would typically lease for something like $5,000 a month, uh, displaced tenants in their insurance companies or approaching homeowners and offering 
something like $20,000 a month or $25,000 a month uh, for 12 months upfront payment. And, and a lot of these homeowners think to themselves, gosh, you know, I, I could live somewhere for a year and, and make somewhere close to six figures by renting out my house to someone who's been displaced and get cash up front. So we're going to talk about considerations that you need to keep in mind if you have a, a homeowner client turned landlord who comes to you uh, and describes such an opportunity um, and asks for your advice and counsel or asks for you to serve as, a, as the property manager in connection with one of these tenancies. Uh, given the Bay Area's very tight housing market and already very dire housing crisis and shortage, it comes as no surprise that individuals who have been displaced by the recent fires and their insurers uh, are bidding very aggressively to lease these homes in adjacent areas while the, while the tenants determine whether they're going to rebuild their homes that were destroyed, relocate, or potentially sell there are now empty lots uh, after the lots are cleaned up. Um, in response to um, the rental price gouging that's been happening both by homeowners uh, when these tenants approach them and the exorbitant fees that insurance companies are offering to pay on behalf of their displaced tenants um, and what the impact that that's having on the market and perhaps uh, displaced uh, individuals who don't have insurance. Um, the state of California has enacted a rental price gouging statute. Uh, the governor declared a state of emergency in uh, multiple counties across California over the past two years. And under the rental price gouging statute, rent for any housing cannot be increased annually by more than 10% as determined by the actual rent paid by the tenant at the time the state of emergency was declared. Now, the state of California has interpreted this law to apply statewide. So what are the rules for determining rental value of a, of a resident, single family home, or, or a condominium um, if you are approached by a client homeowner asking you about this? Uh, there are three primary rules. First, if a unit becomes vacant during the state of emergency, the prior rental amount paid remains in effect as a limitation unless the unit is furnished, in which case the landlord or homeowner can add an additional 5% to the monthly rental value. Uh, second, if a unit was rented within one year prior to the state of emergency declaration, then the last rent paid is the set rental price for that unit. Third, if the rental was not rented for one year prior to the declaration of the state of emergency, the rent limitation is 160% of the fair market rent established by HUD. Now, this third rule, this third prong, is probably going to be the one that applies to your homeowner client who has never rented their home before and never thought about renting their home before until uh, the opportunity that was presented by the wildfires, uh, the many, many displaced tenants and the insurance companies on their behalf offering uh, a year's salary <laughs> um, of many working professionals to lease, lease uh, homes in the nearby areas. Um, 
So what's important when determining what the rent limitation is under this third prong is determining what the fair market rent for the property at issue is um, as established by HUD. Now, how do you make that determination? If you go to HUD's website, which is up on this slide here, www.huduser.gov, you can actually see the fair market rent established by HUD, um, and it's established by county, uh, the county in which the property resides, in addition to the number of bedrooms. Now, uh, once you determine the county in which the property is, the number of bedrooms that property has, the, the HUD chart is gonna tell you what its established fair market rent is for that property. And under this prong, when setting the rental value for such a property, you use the, uh, the HUD rental value times 160%, and that is the highest that your homeowner can, um, can set the rent for that specific property. Um, there's an example here up on your screen. If HUD establishes a fair market rent for your client's property at $5,000 per month, uh, your client cannot rent the property for more than $8,000 a month, which is 160% of the uh, fair market rent established by HUD. It's important to note that it is not a defense to increase rent in excess of 10% annually because of the length of the rental term, an increase in goods or services provided by the landlord or homeowner, save and accept furnishings, which as I indicated, uh, will warrant an additional 5% increase in the rent, or because the rent is paid by an insurance company on behalf of the tenant. Now, the state of California has established some fairly significant penalties for violating the rental price gouging statute. Um, a violation of the statute can result in fines of up to $10,000 per violation. So if you have a client who is renting five different units um, it, out of compliance with the rental price gouging statute, uh, the monetary fines can be up to $50,000 total. Um, in addition, uh, the a violation of the rental price gouging statute can result in one year in jail and it's a per se violation of Business and Professions Code 17200, which is California's unlawful business practice statute. And it's designed to protect consumers um, and, and people acting against, uh, against the, uh, the benefit of the consumer. Um, a violation of the rental price gouging statute will subject your homeowner turned landlord client to punitive damages, which uh, in, in, uh, in layman's terms is three times the amount of the actual damages, which are designed uh, to punish the violator, and also attorney's fees, uh, which in the state of California, you know, can easily be six figures. So violation of this rental price gouging statute is, is a serious offense. Uh, the state of California is seriously looking at and prosecuting these, these crimes. It's not just a civil, uh, civil violation. It's not just a civil lawsuit that will result. It's, it's, a, it's a criminal lawsuit that will result as well. Um, and your homeowner turned landlord client shouldn't think, oh, well, I can do this and this is going to go under the radar. Uh, it definitely will not. 
One exception exists to the rental price gouging statute, uh, which provides that a greater price increase in rent is lawful if the owner or landlord can prove that the increase is directly attributable to additional costs for repairs or additions beyond normal maintenance that were amortized over the rental term that caused the rent to be increased by something greater than 10%. However, I want to warn uh, all of you as real estate agents and brokers to not give your client legal advice or assist in setting the rental price for a client's property. Um, this is because in order to do that, an analysis of the rental price gouging statute needs to be conducted and the, the statute needs to be applied um, to the specific facts uh, that, that your client is presents with. And that's really a job for an attorney, it's not a job for a real estate agent, um, and you should definitely refrain from giving legal advice because no good deed goes unpunished, we all know that. Uh, I, next, I want to talk to you about eviction considerations uh, under this state of emergency that we're in here in California. Um, your clients need to keep in mind that a landlord cannot rent a unit for a rental price greater than the evicted tenant could be charged. So if you have a, if you have a property owner who is leasing out, let's say, a single family home to a tenant, and then after the wildfires decides to evict that tenant because they want to get you know they want to get this sweetheart deal of you know five times the the market rent uh, by an insurance company all up front one year paid as opposed to the market rent they were getting by the tenant who was evicted the state of california says you can't do that so um, and, and they're actively looking into this issue as well. And recently, a Nevada real estate agent was, was criminally prosecuted uh, for evicting a tenant and then raising the rent on her home uh, by 80% from $5,000 a month to $9,000 a month uh, after the fires. This law came into effect on January 1, 2019, and already we're seeing criminal prosecutions uh, flowing from it, and it's only been uh, 30 days. <laughs> so, so don't think that these are going unnoticed by the state of California, and you know tenants are are becoming are becoming uh, knowledgeable about this, especially those who have been displaced, and they're they're reporting uh, what they deem to be improper behavior uh, to the state of California district attorney's office, attorney general, etc. Your clients also need to keep in mind that evictions can only occur for grounds established by California law. Uh, which you can find those grounds at California uh, Code of Civil Procedure 1161. Um, and those grounds include failure to pay rent, breach of a covenant in the lease, uh, lease termination by its terms, improper subletting by a tenant, waste by a tenant, nuisance by a tenant, or some other illegal use that the tenant is putting the property to. The other thing that, that I'm seeing a lot recently is uh, property owners who are leasing their homes to individuals displaced by the fires are finding themselves as defendants to lawsuits that landlords typically find themselves as defendants to. Um, causes of action that we're seeing uh, alleged by tenants 
you know, who are reasonably an emotionally frail state and perhaps their sensitivities are heightened and, and what they're looking for and the expectations of a landlord are heightened. Uh, these tenants are initiating claims against property owners, turn landlords for habitability violations, breach of quiet enjoyment warranties, invasions of privacy, personal injuries, emotional distress damages, all arising out of these tenancies. Um, so this is something that, you know, homeowners need to keep in mind. Not only, you know, might they get a good payday now under the rental price gouging statute, it's not going to be as good as it was prior to the enactment of that statute, but they also need to, they need to weigh the risks of becoming a landlord. Um, you know, they have to uh, ensure that the unit is habitable. Um, there are certain implied and express warranties that come along with being a landlord. Um, and if those are breached, um, the damages that, that a tenant is entitled to include, you know, personal injury damage, emotional distress damage, damages that are not covered under a homeowner's insurance policy. So your, your homeowner turned landlord client might say, well, I have a, home, a homeowner's insurance policy, so I'm willing to bear the risk uh, because if something goes sideways with this tenancy, I, I have insurance to back me. Well, oftentimes, you know, homeowner's insurance policies do not cover the damages that a landlord is entitled to, which include fines, penalties, um, emotional distress, personal injuries, et cetera. So that's, that's a risk that, you're, that your clients need to keep in mind as well. If you have a current or former client who's considering a lease offer for, uh, for a, what seems like a very sweet deal, it's really important that you instruct your client to consult with the appropriate legal professional and or CPA so they can evaluate the risks associated with these type of lease agreements. Um, another thing you need to keep in mind is that if you are asked to serve as a property manager in connection with this type of lease agreement, make sure to first obtain prior approval from your broker. And assuming you obtain prior approval, memorialize uh, the agreement on a CAR form such that you have the indemnity protection provided for thereunder, which flows from the, from the owner uh, to you in the event that anything goes sideways with the tenancy or with the tenant. Next, we're going to talk about some insurance considerations that are in play um, and that have been put into play and some new laws that have been passed uh, in response to the, the wildfires that we've seen in California over the last few years. To protect California homeowners from insurance carriers that have delayed on paying on property damage claims following the wildfires, eight new laws have been adopted in the state of California that I just want to make you briefly aware of uh, in the event that you're consulted by, uh, by a client with regard to one of these issues. Obviously, don't give legal advice, but these are just, this is some background of what's happening in the state and some protections that are being afforded to um, to, to homeowners uh, who have lost their homes that, that you all should be aware of. SB 824 is a new law was, that was passed which prohibits homeowner policy cancellation for one year from the date of the governor's declaration of emergency. SB 894 was passed and that law requires an insurer to grant an extension of coverage for living expenses for up to 12 additional months 
for a total of 36 months if a insured uh, encounters a delay in the reconstruction process that is the result of circumstances beyond his or her control. SB 917 requires coverage from a loss resulting from a combination of covered disasters such as landslides, mudslides, or fire. Previous to the enactment of SB 917, uh, if there was a combination of disasters, oftentimes the, the uh, harm would be, or the damage would be excluded. And this, this puts a patch over that, uh, that issue. AB 1772 was passed, which provides that full replacement benefits uh, must be extended from 24 months to 36 months under a fire policy. AB 1800 was passed, which provides that in the event of a total loss of, of, a, of a home or of an asset, the insured is entitled to policy benefits even if he or she decides to rebuild or purchase a residence in a new location. AB 2594 extends the statute of limitations to sue an insurance company for a loss related to a state of emergency from 12 to 24 months. SB 30 provides that due to climate change, the Insurance Commission is going to convene a working group to assess new investments in natural infrastructure. And AB 75 connects consumers with insurance agents to help ensure that the coverage that is obtained meets the specific needs uh, of that consumer. Uh, the next part and last part of this presentation uh, this morning is going to be a question and answer period. Um, what we're going to do here is you will submit any questions that you have in the Zoom Q&A box on your webinar screen. And I have about uh, five to ten minutes to answer any questions. And any questions that we don't have time to answer today or questions that require some additional information beyond that which you typed into the Q&A, um, we will make an attempt to answer. All you'll have to do is email Cress at riskmanagement at cressinsurance.com. That email address can be found on your webinar screen and we will, answer, we will make every attempt we can to answer those questions as soon as possible. Jennifer, this is Laura. I do have a question, actually quite a few coming in. The sure. first one, should I be advising my clients about the insurance assembly and Senate bills so they know their insurance rights or is that too risky to do? Uh, that is definitely too risky to do. Uh, don't, just like you shouldn't engage in legal advice, don't give insurance price advice either because that falls in the realm of insurance agent and broker. Uh, territory, but it, it is something you should be aware of. So, you know, you can have a conversation with your client about it, um, just generally what you know, but any conversation that you have should be prefaced very clearly with the fact that you are not giving them any insurance advice, you're not giving them any legal advice, and they need to communicate with the appropriate uh, legal and insurance professionals to, to get additional guidance. Okay, we have another question for you. What date did the governor declare the state of emergency? Um, let's see. The governor declared the state of emergency on August 4, 2018. Here we have another question coming through. Is there, are there similar concerns relative to non 
residential sales and property management, i.e. commercial. So my assumption on this question and, and attendee, please correct me if I'm incorrect on this. Are there concerns on the commercial aspect for the wildfires? Uh, sure. Well, let's see. So the NHDS form is a form that is required in connection with residential real estate. I do not know offhand whether there is a, a, a comparable disclosure in the commercial arena. However, that's something I could very easily, uh, we could look into and get you the answer, uh, get you an answer to that. Okay, we have another question. How do we find a good insurance lawyer? <laughs> a good insurance lawyer. Well, you can, you can call me. Um, let's see. In terms of, in terms of defending the interests of the specific agent or broker, or uh, are you, are you talking about someone who can advise a client with regard to the insurance they need? If that person would like to respond, I'll go ahead and read that question. Okay. Um, what, what, I, what I will oh, say. In I'll terms of advising the client. Thank you, Gerardo. Yeah. In terms of advising the client with regard to the insurance they need. So that's not necessarily an insurance lawyer. That's really more of an insurance broker. And, you know, one of the, uh, one of the recent laws that was passed, um, let's see, it was AB 1875, connects consumers with insurance agents, okay, to help ensure coverage is obtained that meets the specific needs of the consumer. Um, so there are there are uh, there are statewide um, provisions where you where a consumer can connect with an insurance agent to ensure that they're getting the right coverage. And also, it's really just a matter of having a good insurance broker. Um, and we can get you recommendations for all different kinds of insurance brokers uh, who, you know, who can help a client. Um, I would say ask somebody that you know who, who has this type of insurance. Ask an attorney, uh, friend, or acquaintance, um, and they can provide you with recommendations of a good insurance broker. Um, there, are, you know, there are plenty of insurance brokers in the marketplace, and it's really probably going to be specific to the area that uh, that the client is in. So that will be a big driving factor too. Jennifer, do we have time for one more question? Sure. Okay, and actually, I do want to answer two of them. I'll answer Mercedes. Are you going to receive copies of the slides? Yes, we are actually going to send this out. You'll probably have it within a week. And the last question, and then we'll have to unfortunately let Jennifer go. Um, this one is, I was involved in a transaction as the listing agent. The selling agent stated that it wasn't necessary for the selling agent to sign the disclosure. Please advise. Would you like me to read that again? No. Um, I'm just making a note. Let's see. You know, I don't have the, the NHDS form in front of me. What I, what I do know offhand is that the seller has to sign the NHDS and the listing agent has to sign the NHDS. I'm not sure whether the buyer's agent or the selling agent needs to sign the NHDS, but I don't see why it would be any different from any other form um, that is executed by, by both the buyer and seller and the listing and selling agent on both sides. So um, I will need to double check that. 
I will pull the NHDS form and, and, and we can get back to you on that. What I will say is if there is a, a, a signature box for the selling agent, then I would say the selling agent definitely has an obligation to sign that form. If there is not, then perhaps they don't have that obligation. I'll, I'll need to pull it and, and refresh my recollection as to that uh, so I can be sure to give you a correct answer. What I would do in that circumstance is I would um, raise that issue with your broker and see what your broker recommends as well. Okay, it looks like we are out of time. I want to thank everybody for attending. It, it truly, sadly, is a whole new world out there.